Well, we're going to have our Bible reading just now. We're going to read from Revelation chapter 12. We're coming back to Revelation tonight. And uh, uh, what we thought we would do just as we were uh, revising a little of how we structured our evening services, that we would move uh, the reading and the, the, the sermon uh, slightly more into the center of our evening and, and allow a little bit more time for a structured response that Peter's going to lead us through uh, later on. So we're going to look at, we're going to read this and then uh, look at it together. So if you've got a Pew Bible, it's uh, page 1241, page 1241 of the Pew Bibles. It's Revelation chapter 12. And we remember this is God's Word. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child at the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He, was, he is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold unto the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word. You might find this helpful if you have that open or handy to you uh, tonight. We don't have a PowerPoint, but we're really just going to uh, work our way through it fairly closely and try and see what God is saying to us in this part of his word. L let me tell you about uh, an Eritrean lady called Helen Bahani. 
She is now uh, in Denmark. She uh, received asylum there, but for two and a half years, she was a prisoner in an Eritrean prison, uh, living in a metal shipping container in uh, a prison. And she was there because she had refused to recant her faith in Christ. It was so cold there at night that you could get hypothermia. It was so hot during the day that your, st- your skin would stick to the sides of the container. Uh, bugs bit her body day and night. She was regularly beaten. And she would write notes to the other Christians, to the other prisoners indeed, and to Christians in particular, and put verses that she had memorized uh, onto those notes in order to encourage them and, and Inevitably, the guards found some of these notes and they came to her and they demanded to know where her Bible was. And she said, well, I don't have a Bible. And she said, well, they said, so it must be in your head. Well, we will beat it out of your head. And so they took her to a courtyard and they began to beat her with wooden battens. She almost lost her life. But halfway through the beating, she turned to one of the guards who was beating her and she said, I do not hate you. You are just carrying out an order, but I want you to know that I am carrying out an order also, and that is that I must not renounce Jesus Christ. So, carry on. There are countless stories like Helen's. And we know that Christianity is the most persecuted religion in the world today. And, and maybe at times we wonder why. Well, why is that? Why is there such animosity from the world towards uh, believers? No, no, we don't face those same pressures. We, we thank God for that. But, but I'm sure that all of us who are Christians have, have a deep sense of how unpopular Christianity is in, in, in at least some of our circles. So for some of us, why is it that in some of the places that you will go this week, you would feel a relative freedom to talk just about, just about anything? And yet, if you started to speak about Jesus Christ, you know that it would bring a strong reaction. Why is that? Or, or, or think of a different question. Why, why is following Jesus hard in general? Why does it feel as if you're swimming against the tide sometimes? Why do people give up? Abandon the faith? Well, this passage of Scripture will help us understand at least some of the answers to those questions. And help us, I hope, to know what to do about it as well. We're, we're returning tonight to Revelation. We, we spent some of our evenings in the springtime looking at the earlier chapters. And let's say just a, a very brief word by way of, of overview to orientate us to this book. Uh, reading Revelation is not like reading some other parts of the Bible, not like reading the Gospels, for example. This is a, a type of literature that's uh, known as apocalyptic literature. It, it communicates its message by means of visions and symbols and numbers often mean things and so on. And, and ancient readers would have understood it much more easily than we do. We have to work a little bit harder, but, but I hope you'll find it's worth the effort. And, and while there have been various ways of approaching this book, as we would know down through Christian history, we are, are understanding it in a very mainstream sort of way to understand that, that what it's talking about is the time really between the two comings of Christ, between Jesus came as 
into our world as a baby came to, uh, to die on a cross and ascend to heaven again. Uh, or to, to be raised and ascend to heaven again. Between that coming of Jesus and the time that he will return. It's, it's covering that period of history. In other words, we're in here. 2019 is in here. But, but it's, not, it's not that, that uh, chapter one is, is then and, and at the end of the book, then we, we, we sort of work our way linearly through. It's, it's not quite like that. It's that the, the time between Jesus' first and second comings is recounted symbolically several times, often in these series of sevens, actually, rather like an action replay at a football match where the same play is looked at in, in different angles. And tonight we come to 12 and 13, which is really pretty much the center of the book and a bit of a turning point. And they're really, really important because they help us just to see these, these chapters. We'll look at 13 next time, all being well. But these chapters help us to see that we're, we're really people who are in a battle. That's, that's the big sort of takeaway from tonight. We, again, thank God that we live at a time of relative peace as far as our part of the world is concerned. But make no mistake about it, we are in a raging battle, and we do well to know that. So what does John see in this vision? Well, it's a pretty grotesque picture as it starts out at the beginning of chapter 12, and it's meant to be. There's a a woman on the point of giving birth. Before her is this great red dragon horribly waiting to devour the child as soon as it is born, a a word indeed to our culture of death that we find ourselves facing even at the moment. And as the the baby comes but is caught up to God... And then the woman flees into the wilderness. Now, these are the characters in this part of John's vision. And clearly they're symbolic. But what do they represent? Let's start with the child first. It's fairly straightforward. Notice in verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Well, it's a description of Jesus. Jesus Christ. He is born. and, And rather than being destroyed by the dragon... He is taken up to heaven. So he is now the ascended king. So, so in those brief moments that are sketched over in this vision, we have Jesus' birth and his life and ministry and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Well, what about the dragon? Well, this is quite straightforward too because he's identified in verse 9. You see in verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the dragon is Satan, and the heads and crowns and horns symbolize great power, maybe knowledge as well, and and, uh, that's emphasized also by the description of him sweeping a third of the stars out of heaven in verse 4. Now what about the woman? Well, that maybe is a little bit more tricky, isn't it? Because at first glance you might think, well, who gives birth to Jesus? It's a reference to Mary, but but it's, it's not that. A closer look, we see that the woman stands for... Uh, what we might say, uh, God's people, the people of God, the messianic believing community. We see in verse one that, that she is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and the 12 stars in her head. There's a little allusion perhaps to Joseph's dream. You remember the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to him. So the stars symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is, this is God's people. The, the, the community out of which Jesus comes, the community that, that through which you can trace the line to Jesus and therefore uh, which gives birth to Jesus, if you might like to put it that way. 
So at the beginning of the vision, Satan is waiting to devour Jesus. The, the hostility that is here has been predicted from the very beginning of the Bible's history. Remember Genesis three fifteen. After the fall, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And one of the ways, actually, that we can read the whole Old Testament story, that we can understand the Old Testament, is as a story of how Satan seeks to destroy the messianic line. How he seeks to destroy God's people so that Jesus will not come. And that same hostility is evident when he does come. So you think, for example, of the slaughter of the innocents at Bethlehem, all those baby boys, maybe 20 or 30, that Herod kills. That has Satan's fingerprints all over it, just as we would see indicated here. Now, all that being said, the focus of this chapter is not particularly the hostility between the, the serpent, uh, or the dragon, sorry, the dragon and the child between Satan and Jesus. The, the focus is rather the hostility between the dragon and the woman, between Satan and God's people, between Satan and the church. That's what this chapter is really telling us about. And that's why it's so important for us, because we're, we're in the church. So, so let's see what happens. When, when the child is born, snatched up to God and to his throne, in verse 5, we find that the woman flees into the desert to a place prepared for her by God. So it's a picture of God's people. They're going into the desert. What's the, what is the desert or the wilderness in the story of the Bible? Well, we, we think, for example, of God's people traveling through the desert after the exodus. It's, it's a difficult place. It's a place that, that causes them to, to grumble because they, they miss some of the luxuries of, of Egypt. It's a place where they are tried and tested. So the desert's tough. But the desert is also the place that God provides for them. You see that. It's prepared for them by God. Verse 6. So it's not accidental. So so for the Exodus people, God prepared and, and provided manna for them, for example. Water. He fed them by day and day after day. His provision never failed. But whenever they're able to look back on their time, they say our, our sandal, the very sandals did not wear out. So there was real provision and protection in the midst of this uh, a challenging situation. So both pressure and protection in the desert. This desert time is for 1,260 days. Now, we've seen that number before. Sometimes it's 42 months, which is, uh, if you take a month at 30 days, it is, is the same number. Sometimes it's three and a half years, or as, as we read earlier, a time, times, that's two, and half a time, that's three, uh, three and a half years. And it seems to refer, so it's all the same, and it seems to refer to the time between the two comings of Christ. It, it was a period, that, that number, that, that, that time period was a, was a period burned into the, the, the Jewish consciousness because between the two testaments, there was a 400 year silence between the two testaments. There was a particularly Greek, uh, particularly brutal Greek ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes 
who invaded the land and he was determined to wipe out the Jewish religion. Possessing the scriptures was a capital offense. You would lose your life. Reading the Bible in any way would have, would have caused you to lose your life as well. He, he slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple. And his oppression lasted for, would you believe, 42 months for, for three and a half years until there was a Jewish rebellion led by a chap called Judas Maccabees and, and Antiochus was overthrown. But that, that three and a half years was sort of in everybody's thinking and, and it was a time of oppression and yet a time whenever God provided for them. So it was both pressure and providence. And this is the time that it seems is being described as between the two comings of Jesus. So there's some of our images. Let's put it all together. What happens after Jesus returns to heaven? The church is tested and tried, but is preserved by God. There are times and places such as Eritrea where this pressure is more intense, but this is the normal experience of God's people. And maybe that starts to help us understand why we feel like aliens and strangers within the world. Pressure and preservation across the world, in your life, and in mine. Now, John's vision goes on to help us see what what lies behind this state of affairs. What happens next, I think, is this same sort of situation viewed viewed from a slightly different perspective, a a sort of behind-the-scenes action replay. There's a great battle in the heavens. You see that the Lord's forces are led by Michael, the archangel. He has appeared already in Daniel as the protector of God's people. And Satan and his forces cannot stand against them. They're cast down to the earth. It it seems that that's the the parallel of what happens when the Christ child comes and ascends to heaven. So so his arrival is the turning point in the battle. The, The life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus changes everything. We would know that. And Satan and his forces are hurled to earth. And and those next verses contain what we're going to maybe call a a commentary of praise as to what's going on. We'll come back to that in a moment. But let's move forward to verse 13 to see what Satan does next. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So Satan can't attack the child, so he focuses on the woman, on the church. So, So now we see why the church is under pressure. She is the focus of the evil one's fury. And you see that verse 12 describes him as being full of fury because he knows his time is short. At every point, he realizes he's been outdone. His attempts to stop Jesus arriving have been thwarted. His attempts to devour Jesus during his life and ministry are thwarted. You know, he tempts him in the desert. Jesus remains resolute. He tempts him in the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus prevails. He he stirs up the hatred of man against him. And God uses that to take his son to the cross and bring salvation to the world. Such are the excellencies of our God. And so frustrated and full of fury, Satan turns his fury on the church. 
But again, we see these descriptions of, of God preserving the church. We see the picture of the woman being taken into the desert, this time on eagle's wings. It was a way of speaking about the exodus. Satan attacks by this flood of water from his mouth. That's a, a very exodus image. You remember the people going through the Red Sea, for example. But the earth swallows up the flood. There's protection again. And it may be that, that this is pointing us to Satan's methods, or one of Satan's methods in attacking God's people. In Revelation, it tends to be the case that those things that come out of mouths refer, as we would expect, to words. So Satan spews out this great torrent of words against the church. You think of it across the world. What does the church face? What do we face? False teaching. False accusations, false understandings, especially in the West. In other places, Satan attacks with these things and with actions like Eritrea. But here, he pushes the church to the margins with words, with lies, with slander. And this onslaught continue, though he is, continues. Though he is frustrated, he carries on. The text says he attacks the offspring of the woman. I don't think this is a, a different group of people or a subset of the church. It's just another way of referring to the family of God, the fact that we are a great multitude. So you, so you see, in, in various ways, the, these truths are, are set before us in this passage. Satan hates the people of God. He cannot attack Christ, though he wishes to devour him, but he attacks Christ's people. He is furious against us because of who we are, because of who we belong to. And, and we must know this. With him, there is no reasoning. There is no truce. And yet in the face of the fury of the evil one, God protects his church. Oh, he allows it to be tried and tested and indeed refined, but he protects it. So you think of the old hymn, the church has one foundation, you know the verse? Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping. Their cry goes up how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. So, so what? What shall we do? Well, well, first of all, we just must recognize, as we said earlier, that this is normal Christian experience. A previous generation used to console itself and cajole itself by saying, don't you know there's a war on? Some of you remember that. And you know that that was sufficient to justify the embracing of any hardship, of the call to any sacrifice. Christian, don't you know there's a war on? You're in the midst of it. Satan wishes to destroy the church. How might he do that? You know, he really doesn't care. But he might gently encourage you to ease off in your Christian life. 
to say, this is important, but you know, all these other things are so important too. Or he might, he might seek to put distance between you and your brothers and sisters. He has a way of whispering to us of the irksomeness of everybody else, doesn't he? They're so peeving sometimes, my brothers and sisters. It would be easier to stay at home and watch songs of praise or pull dark. Or maybe he would grind you down in your war against sin so that he leads you into patterns and behaviors that you once determined you would never follow. Or would he just help you to set your heart on other things so that like Demas, the most significant thing that could be said about you is that you love the world. You see, he doesn't really care how he destroys you. He's a bit like, like Hitler. He didn't care how allied soldiers died, how they were crushed. He just wanted them crushed. Satan is the same. So knowing you're in a battle is really, really important. But, but there's slightly more here in terms of response because we see in this, what we call this commentary of praise in verses 10 to 12, it includes some descriptions of how God's faithful people are able to stand in the midst of these pressures. Three things, briefly. Verse 11, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Now here's the foundation of everything. Jesus has died and has risen again and has made us right with God. In him we have forgiveness, acceptance. We are declared to be right. We are justified. If you're not a Christian here tonight, you're you're, you're investigating all of this. This is the, the, the big offer in the gospel. Jesus is actually the big offer, but with it comes these blessings of forgiveness. And that's particularly important here because we see highlighted one of Satan's key tactics against God's people. He is the accuser of God's people. That's what he does. He's such a hypocrite, you know. He he first entices us into sin. I remember somebody at a Christian John's speaking tonight at CU preterm. I remember being at a a CU house party and, and Somebody explaining this to me, and I thought, I'd never seen this before, but Satan comes along, as it were, and he puts his hand around our shoulders and says, look at this sin, how, how wonderful it looks. Oh, you should go for that. You would feel so good if, if, if that was yours, if you took that to yourself, you, you deserve that. He encourages you into that. And as soon as you take it, he is the accuser and says, What a mess you are. Look at what you have done. How can you call yourself a Christian? God wouldn't want you. Accuser of the brethren. Some of us have allowed him to tell us that so much that it is the constant background music of our lives and we are all but crippled in following the Lord. 
Do you know that Luther would often refer to, to visits from the devil? He, he had that keen sense of the battle that he was in, how the devil would come and whisper in his ear, accuse him of all manner of filthy sin, as it says. He, if Martin, he, 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 would, he would describe these things as, Martin, he said, you, you're a liar, a, a greedy, lecherous blasphemer, you're a hypocrite, you cannot stand before God. And, and Luther would respond, well, yes, I am. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and make it more complete. But you know what? My Savior has died for all my sins. Those you have mentioned, those I could add to, and indeed those I have committed, but I'm so wicked that I am unable to remember having done so. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for them all. His blood is sufficient. And on the day of judgment, I shall be exonerated because he has taken all my sins on himself and clothed me in his perfect righteousness. And so his, his, his counsel to people like us would be this. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there shall I be also. That's what it means to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Rest in what he has done for you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They also overcame by the blood or by the word of their testimony. Because you see, the devil attacks and wants to accuse them, but he also wants to silence them. Verse 11 says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So in the face of difficulty and persecution, what do they do? They tell the good news of Jesus. Remember in Acts, there's a great persecution breaks out against the church and the people of God are scattered. Satan attacks God's people, but those that he seeks to crush are spread and gospel shoots grow up everywhere else. Must have been infuriating for him. The, The pressure is applied and rather than crush God's people, they multiply. So how do we overcome? Well, we rest in his work, but we also proclaim his person. See, this is, this is what we're called to do. And the very thing that we sometimes fear to do, don't you fear to open your mouth sometimes to be a witness? The very thing that we fear to do is the weapon given to us to conquer the evil one. So talk about Jesus. Pray that you'll be able to talk about Jesus. Ask, God's for, ask God for, for openings and for courage. He'll, he'll answer that prayer. So Satan wants to accuse you, but you must rest in the finished work of Christ. He wants to silence you, but you must proclaim Christ. He also wants to confuse you because he wants you to hold on to your life to say, this is mine, and to believe that what matters most is you hang on to number one, look out for number one. But look at how they overcome in verse 11. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Well, we can just about imagine speaking for Jesus, can't we? But death. They said that, like C.T. Stunt, if Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice I can make for him is too great. So we must ask ourselves, what is our life about? What really matters to us? 
You know, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, he says, I know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Satan, overcome by people who say, my life doesn't matter, but he does. So, Revelation 12, what's it saying? You're in a battle, a battle in which there is no respite The enemy wants to devour you. So what do you do? You rest in the finished work of Jesus. The lamb has been slain for you. You are welcomed by God. Whatever happens, if you're a Christian, you speak his name. Tell the world of him. And you pour out your life. We want to take just a, a moment perhaps just to sit in quietness and, and to think, what is it that, that, that I need to take away from this? What, what do I need to ask God to help me with? Let's take a moment just to, to pause and to pray together. We thank you, O Lord, that your word has that particular ability to uncover our hearts, to help us to see and face up to what it is we really want and what we're really like. And sometimes, Lord, that is profoundly uncomfortable. We rest in your finished work. Forgive us for those times that we doubted. We wish to proclaim the Lord Jesus. Forgive us for those times that we are silent. And we want to gladly pour out our lives. Forgive us for all our notions of self-preservation. Hear our prayer, Lord, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.